We are continuing in our Advent series on the kingship of Christ, and today we're going to be looking at Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. So read along with me, uh, if you would, as we turn there now. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Waiting is, waiting is the absolute worst, isn't it? Waiting for things, for people, for uh, anything. Just waiting. Waiting in general is, is awful. It's not fun. It's, it's part of life. And did you know that the average person, the average human being throughout their lifespan is going to spend five years, five years of their life waiting in lines? waiting on hold on the phone, and roughly six months of that five years is going to be you sitting in traffic at traffic lights. Five years. Five years of your life waiting. Americans wait on average 20 minutes a day for the bus or the train. They wait 28 minutes in security lines whenever they travel, and they wait 21 minutes for a significant other to get ready to go outside, to go out the door. Let's go ready. Let's go get ready to eat. Okay, just give me a few minutes. 28 minutes. I'm sorry, 21 minutes. What about the doctor's office where you sit in the waiting room? It's very aptly titled because that's what you're going to do there. You're going to wait. Uh, 32 minutes is the average time in the waiting room, even if you have an appointment, right? You're going to have to wait. They want you to wait in the waiting room. It's not called the in and out room. It's not called the super happy to be here room. It's called the waiting room. This, of course, does not include the type of waiting we do within our own minds, as we wait for diagnoses, we wait for new jobs, we wait for children, we wait for husbands or wives, we wait and we wait and we wait. We wait. This is probably why we hate waiting so much, because we're always doing it, because it seems like that's all we're ever doing. We're always waiting for something. We never actually stop. This waiting is an, un- it's, it's an unwanted interruption in our fast Paced lifestyles. Nobody likes to be made to wait. But you see, Christmas itself is really a time of waiting, isn't it? Some people wait all year for Christmas to come, while others count down the days for it to be over. And then all of you, you know exactly who I'm talking about. You can all come up with somebody in your minds. A week after Christmas is over, they will post on social media or they'll call you and they'll be like, 51 weeks? 51 weeks until next Christmas. I can't wait! Well, you're going to have to wait. They can't wait. But waiting itself is a gift. It's a gift from God. The Christian life is one of waiting. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Learning how to wait is really a lost art in our fast-paced information, gimme, gimme, gimme age that we live in. We're instant gratification, and having to wait for that is no fun. But you all know when you stop. And when you breathe and you enjoy the waiting, 
the silence of it, it can really be quite beautiful and meaningful. And I think the older you get, the more you appreciate the waiting. You sit there and you go, can I just have a moment of peace? A moment where I don't have to do anything. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, the manger, the cross, Sunday morning worship, what we're doing right now, these are interruptions in our lives. And they force us to slow down and wait. God is saying, take notice. Smell the roses. Look what I've done. Look what I've made. Rest. In fact, God commanded us to take one day out of seven. One day out of seven to rest because he knew we wouldn't do it unless he commanded it. And there are people who who can't stand that he commanded it. They don't want a day of rest. Why do we have to? No, I need to work on Sunday. I need to do this. But he's commanded us. He knows we need to rest. We need to rest in him. You see, the Jews themselves were no stranger to this practice of waiting. There was a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the intertestamental period. And it refers to the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Now you have to imagine this. Imagine having a prophet and anytime you wanted God's word, you could go to the prophet every month or every couple of years, and the prophet would have a word from God. And then we come to the end of the Old Testament. In Malachi 4, the last chapter in the Old Testament, he, he promises that there will be a son of righteousness. That God will send a son of righteousness, and he, shall have, he will rise with healing in his wings. And he says, you'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. And God also says, I will send Elijah who will come in power and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And Jews are reading this and they're hearing this from the prophet and they're going, yes, I can't wait to see next week. Oh, may, oh next month God's going to send Elijah. I can't wait. A hundred years pass. And then 200 years pass. And 300 and 400 years pass, and there's no word from God. Silence. No Elijah. And so it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament, there's hardly anybody waiting. But there's a faithful remnant. There's Simeon, who's longing to see the Christ. Not only does he get to see the Christ, he gets to hold the infant Lord in his arms. And there's Anna, who's there waiting. There are people waiting. There's always people waiting. Always God's people. Not only earth, but even heaven was waiting. Can you imagine you're an angel and you see what happens in the garden and and you hear the promise of God that he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and you wait. This is why 1 Peter says that angels longed to look into the mystery of God's salvation. They were waiting. They were so excited. And when God, can you imagine the courtroom of heaven when he said, go to Bethlehem. And the angels, I'm I'm going too. All the angels, they flood down there. They're shepherds. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And all the angels are like little kids. They can't keep silent. They've been waiting this whole time. This is Christmas. Here they are. And they burst out. Glory to God in the highest. This is it. This is the moment. The king has come. Christmas is here. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian pastor, he said this. He said, no priest, 
No theologian stood at the manger at Bethlehem, and yet all Christian theology has its origin in the wonder of all wonders that God became human. 400 years of waiting was over. The promised child was born. Good things come to those who know how to wait. Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Which brings us to our passage today. And our first point. The first point is that hearing that the King of Peace has come is a holy terror to his enemies. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I just recently watched the old um, Rankin and Bass claymation, you know, the Christmas movies, the Rankin and Bass ones and the little, you know, and I looked at my wife, Ashley, and I said, these, these did not age well. They're, they're, uh, they, I don't, they don't have the same magic that they once had for me, you know, but I'm watching the little drummer boy and I love that one. We're watching it with my kids. It's only 15 minutes and we watch it. And it's remarkable to me how wrong these movies get the actual story. It's almost like they, they looked at the Bible and they said, no, 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 That's, we're not going to do that. We want to do sort of that, but we want to picture like a little, nice little Christmas card, you know. So they have the, the Magi there and it's this little picture, this little beautiful, you know, thing like the manger scene and the shepherds. And the, all right, now you, uh, okay, Joseph, you stand there. Mary, I know you just had the baby. Can you go change for us? Put your little blue hood on, you know, your little white. And the angel, please hover up there if you would. Right? That's the picture. It's not the Bible. It's not, it's not the story. And the actual story is way better. It's, it's, it's way better than anything Hollywood can drum up. Because the actual story is so unimaginable, none of us would have actually ever made it up. I mean, it's just mind-boggling what happens here. We see strangers from the East. These are far-off outsiders who come to worship the King of the Jews. And they want to give him extremely valuable gifts. If my son, you know, Thaddeus, my son Thaddeus, I really splurged on you this year. Please open your presents. Oh, dad, just what I always wanted. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are not presents you give to a child. These are presents you give to a king. And as I'm sure many of you know, they, they're foreshadowing a death. They're foreshadowing what the king came to earth to do, to ransom his people by dying for their sins. You see, these wise men are, are called in the Greek magoi, which is a really unique word. Uh, it only appears here in this way, and it, it basically means magician. Most likely they're philosophers. They could be priests uh, from the Persian or the Median empires, maybe even part of the fire-worshipping cults. That's sort of what they did over there. Uh, people are, are different people, commentaries. They're, they're all over the place with who these people are. But they come. And, and the reason they're all over the place is because this is why we take so much license with who the Magi actually are. Roman Catholic tradition, uh, you know, has taken it and they go, three expensive gifts must be three kings. Okay, let's give them even names. Melchior, Balthazar, Gaspar, they just give them names. You know, again, this is tradition. The Bible does not name them. They're just three Magi, or the Magi, not even three. 
The Greek word here, magoi, uh, it appears in a similar fashion with Simon the Magus, who's a Simon the sorcerer, he's in Acts 8, or Elymas the sorcerer in Acts 13, 6. So these magicians, these astronomers, these wise men are known practitioners of the dark arts, really, of some other religion, right? They're known for their wisdom, they're known for something they do, astronomy, whatever they're, they're doing. But the beautiful thing about it is that these men who probably worshipped other gods, who probably practiced these dark, dark arts, are now early victories of Christ our King. These men are trophies of Christ's power over darkness, of his victories over Satan. And so when all of these devotees of other gods start coming to worship the one true king, we have at the manger a picture of what Christ's ministry and work is going to be to overthrow the kingdom of Satan, to overthrow the power of sin in our lives. This reminds me of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's great Narnia books. Uh, The children first come to Narnia. They encounter two beavers who are anxiously waiting for the return of Aslan, the king. And they're there, and it's, it's always winter. It's never Christmas. The white witch has made sure it's always winter. Can you imagine that? Always winter, never Christmas. It's terrible for us Floridians. But something's changing. Because Father Christmas shows up and he says, I've come at last. She has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. So in the first few chapters of Matthew, this is what's happening. Aslan is on the move. The arrival of the Magi, Satan's winter, is done. His icy grasp upon the hearts of men is melting away. This is why the arrival of Christ the King is a holy terror to his enemies. All of hell's machinations could not stop God's eternal purposes and plan to redeem and save the lost. Uh, Martin Luther, I'm pretty sure it's Martin Luther who said this. He was saying, you can imagine the waiting that Satan has done. Since that very first moment in the garden and God promised the seed of the woman, every single childbirth after that first one with Adam and Eve sent chills down Satan's spine. Is this the seed of the woman? Is this the seed of the woman? He had to wait and every single time sent him into holy terror. This is why when Herod meets with these wise men, he hears their question about the birth of the king. It says, he was troubled, to put it lightly, and all Jerusalem with him. This is not good news. This is not good news for Herod. It's a challenge to his throne. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, the Magi's asked. Now you can, you can think, if you put yourself in Herod's mind, what? what? Why are these... These men, these wise men from the east, what do they care about some infant king of the Jews? Why do they care? What is Persia? What is me? What do they have to do with little Jerusalem? What's, what's the point here? What, what, what are they doing here? This is very upsetting to him. What's their answer? Verse 2. For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. You see, these men conclude that in time, this Infant king of the Jews will not merely be king of the Jews. He will be king of the whole world. He will be their king. And so they have come to kiss the son, lest he be angry. He will be king over all the earth. Every knee, the Bible says, will bow. Every tongue will confess. 
On earth, under the earth, and heaven above, some knees will bow in humble adoration to their king, while rebellious knees will be broken in subjugation to their Lord. And though this news troubled Herod, Herod was an Edomite. So, of course, you know, it troubled him. He didn't want to lose the throne. But you would think that Jerusalem, God's own people, you think they would have rejoiced and said, forget this guy. We're going with the Magi. Let's go. 400 years. Surely they would have been excited. But they're troubled. They're troubled as well. Only the foreigners, only those who are far off, only the outsiders want to come and worship the king of the Jews. Jesus in Matthew 8, 11 through 12, he says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So why was Herod in Jerusalem troubled? For the same reason that Satan and all the powers of darkness were troubled. Because the true king had come. Because winter was melting. Because all the pretenders and all those who were on the thrones were about to be kicked off. And the days of man's rebellion was given an expiration date. The king had come to spread his kingdom, to free his people from sin. The waiting was over. You see, this also means that Christ's kingship for us means we're not on the throne. It means disruption disturbance, interference with our plans. If you're like me, you don't like this all the time. Because there's plenty of things I go, Lord, you know, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, that's not the way Heath wants it. You know, I, I, I like to be in control because if I'm in control, at least it'll be done the way I want it to be done. And so my sin in my heart rebels against Christ on the throne. Part of it troubles me. And I have to abandon that and say, Lord, no, you alone on the throne. Here's my crown. Lord, you alone are king. Slavery to sin is foolishly preferred by many to the glorious liberty of the children of God. They think sin is a better master than Christ. And though Jesus' star shines in the heavens and all men and women have seen it, Romans 1 says, all have seen it, all are without excuse. Everyone knows Christ is king. But they suppress the light. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he put it this way. He said, many will say, do not bring that religion here. It makes such contention. One believes this and one believes that and another believes nothing at all. We shall have trouble in the family if we get religion into it. Yes, you will. That is acknowledged in the scriptures. For our Lord came to bring fire on the earth He has come with a sword in his hand on purpose to fight against everything that is evil, and there will be contention. I do not wonder that the great lovers of ease are troubled. If I become a Christian, I cannot live as I have been accustomed to live, says another one. So I will not believe the gospel. The great argument against the Bible is an ungodly life. If you probe to the bottom of the matter, some sinful pleasure is the reason for many a man's infidelity. There's a practical reason against his repenting. He cannot give up his darling sin. He will not give it up. So he's troubled when Christ comes near. And so you see the obvious question for all of us simply today is this. Is your sin so darling to you that the thought of Christ coming near 
terrifies you. So many wise men in this world today have tremendous amounts of light, but it is artificial. You see, only, only looking upon the face of Christ, only then does true light enter into our midst. So many in this world are exposed to truth and wisdom, just as Herod, the priests, the scholars, they knew exactly where to turn in the Bible. They knew exactly where to turn to find out where the king was to be born. They just didn't care. They cared enough that it troubled them, that it bothered them. They refused to give up their thrones. And you see so many in today's world, in our pews today, in our, all across the globe, week after week, they're exposed to preaching, to great wonders, to great mysteries. They're in the church, yet they spurn the gift of grace and mercy, and they loathe the fact that Christ should have to come at all. We're doing just fine without you, Jesus. What, saved from what? I'm, I'm a good person, Lord. I, I, you know, thanks for coming. I like the sentiments of it. I like, I like the idea of the religion, the Christian religion, but I just don't want to be bothered too much. But you see, the king has come. The king has come. And whether men or women acknowledge that as fact will not remove him from his throne. And if you have not kissed the son and declared him as Lord, I pray this terrifies you. I pray you will not rest easy tonight because the king is on his throne. And if you do not know him as Lord, he will return. And you will have to answer to his face why you rejected his mercy and his love. And so now we, we're looking back at the first advent, his humbly and lowly, meek and mild. But the scripture gives us a, a, a stark contrast to when he comes again, riding on a horse with power and judgment and righteousness. That's why the Bible says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a good word for all of us. Which leads me to my second point. Hearing that the king of peace has come brings great joy to his people. You see, the troubled king Herod had assembled the chief priests, the scribes, and he says, where is this king going to be? Let's figure out this information. Verse 5 and 6. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, this is a prophecy from the book of Micah. This is Micah 5, 2 through 5. Here's the passage that they're quoting from. This is verse 2 in Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then jumping down to verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Now this is peace to me. This is a great comfort to me that God consistently uses the weak, the foolish things of this world to work his mighty wonders. This small, unassuming little town, tiny little Bethlehem, is going to be the birthplace of King David, right? Right, right all before this. It's the birthplace of the King David. And now again, this tiny town, whose name means house of bread, is going to be the birthplace of the bread of life. 
From similar fields that King David himself probably would have attended as a shepherd comes the angels to bring the good news. That the one who will shepherd the flock of God for all eternity, he is great David's greater son and he's come at last. This is why we should rejoice. There's so much hope here. There's so much joy here. Come and worship. Come bow down at the king's feet. Is there any happier interruption that could have happened to these shepherds? Is there any more pressing matter for these wise men from the east that they should not drop everything and go to Bethlehem? And is there any, is there any better news that you will hear this whole week than what you're hearing right now? That the king has come to be with his people, to guide his people, to, to take care of his people, to redeem his people from their sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, strikes, he strikes at the wonder in the heart of Christmas. He writes this, Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and he makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments, and he performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. God justifies the unrighteous. This is Emmanuel, God, with us. His grace and his gospel is going forth It's calling men and women from the farthest east, even to this day. And now if you think back to your own life, think back to your own past, think of your troubles, think of the circumstances that you may have found yourself in. Is it not a wonder that you yourself are here today in this very room? Thinking of all the the mistakes or the little things that you could, if I had just done this, if the Lord had not guided me through this, I would have been over here, I would have been there. And and yet his hand has sustained you. Every step of the way. God is near to the lowly. His presence, that his grace has arrested us. His eternal love has placed his hands upon our shoulders. And now we are taken prisoners for Christ. You see, this Advent message is utter joy for those who love their king. This is not a holy terror for us. This is holy wonderment. This is the stuff of mystery and legends. The manger is a reminder that the king has come. He took on flesh and that he made himself subject to waiting. Jesus, the God outside of time, entered human history and was subject to waiting for stuff. I want you to let that sink in. Let that sink in that Jesus had to wait. He waited for food. He waited for his disciples, and now he's still waiting. He's waiting in heaven to come just as we wait on earth for him to return. Jesus knows what it feels like to wait, and that means he sympathizes with us during our waiting. Not only that, but he's with us during this time. Which leads us to our final point today. Hearing that the King of Peace is coming again should ignite our faith. So what do we do? What do we do during the waiting? Now that we're waiting, now that we know the Christ, Christ the King is on his throne, we've given up our thrones, 
We put him on it. We want to worship and adore him. What is our salvation for? What are we saved for? I can say without a doubt, my number one prayer, maybe many of you as well in 2020, I've prayed this probably more times than I can count. I've prayed for the king to return. I've prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. And since I know that the Lord has heard my prayer, the question then becomes, what is taking him so long? <laughs> Why? Why wait any longer? What's the holdup? And the answer, of course, is because he's patient. God knows how to wait. And I praise God for that. That God is patient with us. I, I would quote this every single Sunday if I could. This is 2 Peter 3.9. It says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God is patient because the full number of elect from all over the globe, from the east to the west, they're not all in the, the pasture yet. The flock of God is not all in yet. So he's waiting for every last little sheep to come. So if we want to speed this up, this is why evangelism, this is why world missions is so important to the life of the church. You know, us reformed folk kind of get a bad word sometimes. They go, well, you guys don't care too much about evangelism. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. We want every, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, we want everybody to come into the pasture. We want our shepherd to come and return. Revelation 16, 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You see, blessed is the Christian that is found ready and waiting. Blessed is the Christian who has mastered the art of holy, godly waiting. What do I mean, what do I mean by that practically? Thank you for asking First of all, godly waiting looks like witnessing to our friends, to our family, to our enemies. This is our message. The master's coming back. The king is coming back. Make way his return. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ. Relinquish your thrones. It's, it's an emergency. It's urgent. He could, he could come back right this minute. He could back, come back next week. He could back, come back... Tonight, any time he could come back. And I want everybody at the table. Secondly, godly waiting looks like preparing your own heart, your own self for the king's arrival. It means daily killing your sin. Uh, many of you will know the story of the Spartan boy. right? This was a story told uh, to, to show just how tough Spartan men were. Okay? So there's a Spartan uh, schoolboy and he captures a fox. He wants to keep the fox for himself, but it's time to go in. The school, schoolmaster calls them in, so he tucks the fox under his cloak, and he holds the fox tightly to his chest, to his bosom, and he maintains stiff face, right? He does not show what's going on. Otherwise, the schoolmaster would find the fox, and he'd be punished severely. So the fox is there all the while, eating away at the boy's flesh. But the boy does not show any sign of it, until finally the fox eats the boy's heart. And you say that's an extreme story, but isn't that what many of us do with our sin? 
that we hold this precious, darling little sin to our bosom. We hide it and we keep it close and we think, the schoolmaster will not see this. I'll remain, I'll just deadpan. I won't. And eventually that sin eats away at our heart. And so scripture calls us to flee from it. What comfort can Christ's coming be for you if you are holding that sin to your chest? You must quit your sin or you must quit all hope. Come to Christ. Cling to him. Abandon your sin. Abandon your idols. Get off your throne. And thirdly and finally, godly waiting looks like a life lived in godly fear of the good king. Tim Challies, who's a pastor, he's an avid blogger. Uh, Ron mentioned a couple weeks ago that he lost his son. His college-age son, Nick, was playing a game with his sister, his fiance, and he just collapsed. And he never gained, regained consciousness. He just died. That was it. And they still don't know. I, I don't believe they still know what happened. And he's been blogging ever since, and he's been writing articles talking about his, his grieving process. And recently, Tim Challies wrote an article entitled, I Fear God, and I'm Afraid of God. And in it, he writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says this is not some servile fear as a man who's terrified of an evil person doing him harm. Just as Herod and Jerusalem was scared of the king coming. It troubled them that the king might come. He says, rather, it's a filial fear. It's a fear of a child for a father, an honorable child for a kind and loving father. Chalice continues, I have feared God in this way since I was very young, but these days I'm also finding myself afraid of God. I fear him in that sense of rightly accessing his power, his abilities, his sovereignty, but I'm also afraid of the ways he might exercise them. It was, after all, just a month ago that God exercised his sovereignty in taking my son to himself. My life of ease and privilege was interrupted by a loss so great I would never have even allowed myself to imagine it. In one moment, God delivered a blow that staggered me, that very nearly crushed me. See, Jesus is the disruptive king of peace. He will unseat us from our thrones. He will topple our idols of safety and comfort. And he may even take our loved ones, those we hold dear, before we're ready to let them go. But when he does all this, he does so with righteousness and with wisdom beyond anything we could ever imagine. And all of it is done for our good. I'm going to end with Narnia, because of course, why would I not end with Narnia? There's a conversation between Mr. Beaver and Queen Susan. Aslan is a lion, the the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. May this good king, this sovereign king that we serve, light our hearts, grant us peace, the peace that only comes by worshiping at his throne. Let's pray.